Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 42 of the Watch Rolling Podcast. The Watch Rolling Podcast is a veteran-owned podcast that helps newer watch enthusiasts learn from my mistakes while bringing valuable veteran resources to the attention of the watch enthusiast community. My name is Jason, and I'm your host. If you're new to the pod, welcome, and if you're returning, welcome back. Episode 42 is brought to you by Mushi Watch Straps. Mushi Watch Straps is a veteran-owned business, provides well-built and fairly priced NATO straps, two-piece straps, leather, and canvas straps, as well as watch tools, accessories, and storage. Feel free to use the code VET10, that's Victor Echo Tango 10 at checkout for 10% off your entire order. And be sure to go give the website a look with spring around the corner. You probably want to get some cool NATO straps or some canvas straps, something that you can kind of, you know, wash and keep clean as the war- weather gets warmer. And uh, just jazz up a pre-existing watch with one of those straps. I'll include the link to Mushi Watch Straps in the show notes, and they can be found at www.mushiwatchstraps.com. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss what I think, the, what I personally think the differences are between a micro brand and an independent brand and how that matters to you as a new watch enthusiast and why you should consider it. And I also cover uh, the VA is offering $30 million in grants, grant funding to assist in formerly homeless veterans find and maintain housing. There's a bunch of stuff involved in that one. So it'll be nice to cover that one. Let's get into the watch enthusiast stuff. So you hear as a new watch enthusiast, you might hear the term, you know, micro brand or independent watch company or independent brand. And I've seen a bunch of websites try to define this, but I think that it comes down to literally a very subjective definition. So I feel like I should get my own, especially if you're a newer watch enthusiast and you're kind of confused by it because I feel like there is a distinct difference. And in my dealings with watch companies, I've ran across some that I feel are, I mean, they're micro brands or small people and stuff, but or small groups of people put out small numbers of watches, but then there's like real design elements and stuff behind it. So, I'll just touch on that, right? So for me, one of the first things I noticed about the difference between a micro brand and an independent is the amount of information you can find about the brand, right? And this could be anywhere from websites to, you know, whether reviews are getting done, um, who's doing the reviews. And for me, micro brands, it seems there's, they seem to be harder to find information about. And what do I mean by that? It's like, you know, the websites are really bare. There's not a lot, on, there's not a lot of stuff on there. There's not really anything that tells you anything about the brand or what their ethos or, you know, whatever, uh, whatever their mission statement is. And it's kind of hard to find that information about a micro brand. Right. And I feel like for the independent watch brand, all that stuff's front loaded. They tell you the story behind the brand. They tell you what their ethos is or mission statement. What do they want to do? Are they, you know, contributing to charities, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's an important thing to distinguish because I feel like a lot of time people talk about micro brands as just, it's a small amount of people and they're pumping out like limited amounts of watches. It, I don't think that's entirely fair to a company that's relegated to that because they just don't have as much capital per se as other, other companies, right? So they have to, by design, have a smaller number of people and they have to, by design, pump out a smaller number of watches. But there could be stuff involved in what they're doing, even in those small number of watches that they're just not a throwaway micro brand. They have a long-term plan. Um, they, they have an idea of what they want to do. And I don't want to kill the rest of the, uh, the episode, but because I'm going to touch on some other stuff. But so I think that's important to, to look into. Take a look at their information. 
can you get a, a sense of, you know, who the company and who the brand is by what they provide you, whether it's in interviews, whether it's in their own website, whether it's in articles, um, listen to some of the people that interact with them. How are they, are, you know, are they, do they have good customer service, which I'm going to touch on that in a little while. Well, or do they have like just good general media relations with people? There's been some brands that I think people will consider smaller brands that I've dealt with. Their, their media relations are excellent. They're, they're on top of it. They get back to you. They're polite and professional, which is what I try to be with them. And there's other ones that you don't hear anything from them. And, you know, maybe they're just not comfortable doing it or maybe there's a reason why. But I think that the first thing is information because I think it's the one thing that we as watch enthusiasts go after right away. We're trying to find information on stuff, especially stuff we're interested in. And I know we'll go to like what I always call the big three, like an audio format, a video format, or a written format to get that. Another area I think are design cues. And I know this is, this is like, again, a gray water, brackish water area. But my thing is with micro brands, my experience has been what I consider micro brands is they're, they're, they're obviously taking homage from an existing model. So and the one model that everybody knows about is a Rolex Submariner, but you know, there's a lot of companies that get their start. Now it doesn't mean that they don't want to do something later. That's more original. They're trying to get capital from watch sales. And, and I got to believe like, you know, just, you know, crafting the cases and all this other stuff helps them get to that point, right? The, the, they practice and have practical application on stuff that helps them when they finally get to do the designs they want to do. Uh, they can do it because they have the you know tangible experience of making something else before. I haven't seen that in a lot of micro brands, what I consider to be a micro brand. It's like, here's our Rolex Submariner. Here's our chronograph that looks an awful lot like a Breitling. Here's our, you know, dive watch that we always have about a Submariner, but looks a lot like a, like a Zen or something. And then I feel like independent watch brands have very original design cues and elements, right? And, and I like to differentiate between those two points there too. So there's an awesome book by, uh, Nardan that's called the magical watches where they give you a bunch of style elements in there, right? Like Dolphin hands and case types and shapes and all this stuff. And I feel like you can use those pre-existing. Almost everyone has to use them, right? Cathedral hands, et cetera, et cetera. Who made dials, but you can do it in a way that's original to you. Right. And just because some other person has used like that kind of handset before, doesn't mean that you're blatantly taking from them. Right. And I feel like, most of the really good independent watch brands that I've ran across take some of these pre-existing design elements and put them together in a way that very much gives them their own design language. And over time, even though they're pumping out smaller numbers of timepieces or they have less people working for them, eventually you get and you see a timepiece, you're like, oh, I know who that brand is. Uh, one of those brands is Fears for me. I feel like when I see a Fears, I know a Fears. Uh, I know Christopher Ward's not really small anymore but i know for a while there it got to the point where i kind of knew a christopher ward when i was seeing it um helms another independent brand i would call that that they borrow a lot but like their case just the the how industrial their cases are built um i feel like they take style elements and put them together in a way that's very helm when you see a helm you know what it is um and then so on and so on like you know sangin and other stuff but i feel like the more and more you look, you'll notice the difference between a micro brand that's kind of mailing it in, right? And then someone that's taking existing, like an independent watch company, taking independent uh, design elements and 
that are long established and putting them together in a package that is very much their own. The next topic is customer service. I've dealt with micro brands where I, I got something on Kickstarter and I can't get a hold of them at all. And I've dealt with other quote unquote micro brands where I send an email and the owner writes me back. It's like, oh, my bad, et cetera, et cetera. We'll send you something out right away. And then I send them back the, the damage thing or whatever, and it gets worked just fine. So I, I think the difference between customer service between a micro brand and independent is the independent's usually excellent. And I feel like that really matters because I feel like if you want to have really good customer service, really good customer service, like Long Island Watch customer service, um, that means you're in it for the long haul because you're trying to retain the customer base that you've established. It's not a money grab. You're not trying to get it out. Um, you want to solve your customer base's problems and help give them good solutions so they come back and purchase more watches from you. And I think that that's a key difference between what I would call a micro brand and an independent brand. All right, history behind the watch brand. So most micro brands, they have none, but they're building some up. Um, I think that even that's a little different. I feel like if they're just saying this timepiece was inspired by the canals of Venice and the snowy slopes of the Himalayas or something like that, then, you know, you can tell it's kind of fluff. It's kind of like when you write a resume and you, you don't use any numbers to substantiate anything or to show any changes you made. You're just kind of like, oh, this person led was an artful leader and blah, 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 blah. It's kind of, that's kind of like the micro brand write up, right? Or an independent watch brand can tell you, Hey, we may have started only 10 years ago, but we started this and this is who we are. And this is our desire, you know, our, our motto and what we're trying to do. And this is who we provide charity to and et cetera, et cetera. Or like someone like Ver, Ver watches, who I think some people call a micro brand, but I think that they're kind of an independent because, you know, there's two guys that like to surf. They want to have good dive watches that are affordable and they're kind of coming into their own. And I've, I've handled a lot of Vares. They make pretty good stuff. I feel like I know Vare as a brand because of the amount of information and the history, which was a little small at one time. They're putting out so people understand what they are. So I think that's a key difference between a micro brand for me and an independent. And then some people talk about ownership. Uh, I know that there's a little wiggle room in there. You know, ownership, a micro brand, it could be small and it could be large. And an independent probably isn't owned by a larger group. And I know there's some bleed there like anywhere else, right? You could technically have a micro brand that's owned by a large group. There's, and I found a couple, me and me and my buddy T were doing some research at once. And we found a dive company that when we looked at it, they're like, oh, they're making small batches of watches. But then when we like did the trail, the paper trail of who actually owned them, they're owned by a huge company and they mail it in. And there's a, you know, I've ran across a big brand I'm not going to name, but when I went to wind up, it was apparent that this one quote unquote dive watch brand was just owned by a bigger company and they were trying to play off like, you know, that they were a little bit smaller. But my point is just take a look at the ownership. Uh, I always worry about an ownership that isn't upfront. I always worry about an ownership that doesn't come out and talk to the brands or to the customer service base, especially as a smaller quote unquote brand. I feel like if you're smaller, you want to get out there, you want to tell your tale, you want them to know who that you're the owner or you're owned by a group of people and you want to get your story out. Uh, it's like the Abbott and Watch Company. You know, their story is awesome. We've talked about it before in the podcast. And when I met Abbott and everybody from the team at Windup in New York City, I got to learn a lot about that brand. And it's, it's a brand I'm going to be watching. I'll probably make a purchase from in the future. So I want to I make sure that it doesn't sound like I'm saying 
micro brands are all bad and independents are all great. That's not the case. I just say for me as a newer watch enthusiast still that information, design cues, customer service, history, and ownership are kind of what I go off of to determine what amount of credibility behind the brand is there for me to make a purchase. I mean, I own two watches that I got off of Kickstarter um, because I was new in the hobby and I listened to a bunch of reviews and I got them and they're, and they're nice little watches, but I haven't heard anything from the brand since then. And I can't, I can't move these watches, you know? And um, I mean, they weren't the most expensive things in the history of the planet, but at the same time, it'd be nice that if I had some stuff that I didn't want to wear, I could actually sell it, you know, and get more than a penny back on the dollar, but it is what it is. And the last thing I want to talk about is when it comes to watchmaking, having been to the veterans watchmakers initiative, uh, I've seen the watchmaker course where the students literally build the watches and I'm not talking assemble them. They, they, they are taught to build the tools to build the watches that I understand that's what real watchmaking is. And I've seen some of the independents and even some of the micro brands, you know, they have to, I think in the beginning, order cases from a case maker, et cetera, et cetera. But when they get the chance to actually start making watches from the ground up, they do that. And, and we've seen that with some brands in recent history. Um, and I think that's a distinct difference between a micro brand and an independent brand. And it's those five clues. So I hope that helped you out. If you have any questions, like always, Put them in the comment section of the podcast or shoot me a DM on Instagram. All right. In veteran-related news, I want to discuss uh, an article from the Office of Public and Intergovernmental Affairs where it talks about the VA's offering $30 million in grant funding to assist formerly homeless veterans. I think this is important. We did uh, a previous episode, I think it was back like episode 11, where the VA was going to inject $11 million in. Uh, but now they've upped that to $30 million in grant funding for organizations to help formerly homeless veterans maintain their independence and housing stability. So it's not just enough to get them into a home. They want to help keep them into a home, right? And so the funding opportunity is going to give organizations the funding need to hire case managers. And these case managers are going to help veterans search for, obtain, and successfully transition to permanent housing, help them troubleshoot challenges and barriers to maintaining permanent housing. And it's going to do all kinds of stuff like connect with services to address issues such as poor credit history, rent arrears, legal issues, and more. And so the VA anticipates awarding 100 case management grants for up to $300,000 each to support approximately 150 case manager positions nationwide. And it's going to be awarded over the course of two years, starting on October 1st, 2023 and ending September 30th, 2025. So if you've been in business for a while, you know those are the Julian calendars, right? The business calendars, the fiscal year starts in October. The fiscal year starts in October and ends in September. So this will be from October 20, October 1st, 2023 to September 30th, 2025. And then there's a whole description of the funds that are available through the VA's homeless providers grant and per diem program, which I'm going to cover in a second. So everyone knows if you watch, listen to the last episode where we discussed this, that it, uh, ending veteran homelessness is a top priority of the VA. And the number of veterans experiencing homelessness has fallen by 11% since 2022 and 55.3% since 2010. Now, with any kind of statistical numbers, this, you know, I'm sure they did a survey and talked to people. Not everyone's willing to admit that they're homeless, but those are pretty good numbers to, to help eliminate homelessness for veterans the best we can. And just last year alone, the VA placed more than 40,000 homeless veterans into permanent housing. 
that goal exceeded the VA's goal by 6%. So there's also a strategic plan to prevent end homelessness you can read about, which lays out the goal of reducing homelessness for all Americans by 25% in 2025. So, you know, the VA is just trying to combat homelessness for veterans. Number one, by reaching out to homeless veterans, understanding the needs that they have and addressing them. And there's a bunch of studies that's been done for this. And I, I think it's a good thing to look into because they also want to talk about healthcare, job training, legal and education assistance and more. And we've talked about that before, right? We got to get our fellow veterans healthy. If they need some job training, believe me, I could use some job training when I retired and legal and education assistance if needed to get them back on their feet. There's a whole section for eligible entities to um, apply for these case management grants and all the grant applications have to be received by 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, May 4th. So there's some links in there I'll add. But I want to go over the grant and per diem program under the VA Homeless Program. And again, I'll include the links on the show notes. But they talk about they're having a new GPD. That's grant and per diem program. Notice of funding opportunity. And we already talked about it. $30 million. Uh, $300,000 grants for approximately... 150 case manager positions nationwide, and it's over two years. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm going to include a link to the case management notice of funding opportunity and the case management notice of funding opportunity overview. And then on October 27, 2022, they published two grant opportunities, a per diem only grant that funds transitional supportive housing beds or service centers. So it's a per diem only grant, and it funds anybody that's in a trans transitional supportive housing bed or service center. So you have to be attached to those. And a transition in place grant or TIP grant that provides veterans with apartment style housing that allows veterans to retain the unit as their permanent housing when they complete the GPD program. So this grant allows you to get into an apartment style housing. And then once you complete the program, you as the veteran get to retain the unit for permanent living. The VA anticipates awarding 350 of these PDO per diem only grants to support approximately 10,500 transitional housing bed, beds and 15 service centers nationwide. And then the VA also anticipates awarding approximately 40 TIP grants to support 600 TIP beds nationwide. And that's a lot of, it's a lot of housing for a lot of people. And there's a bunch of other stuff on here. There's grant application webinars, how to apply for TIP and PDO grants, um, electronic grants management system, how to register a new organization, how to add or update contacts, a sample letter of coordination, there's an application for federal assistance in SF TAC 424. And then there's all different kinds of stuff, assurances for non-construction programs, the GPD regulations, et cetera, et cetera. And the last thing I want to cover is a brief program description. So the VA's grant and per diem program is offered annually as funding permits, right? By the Department of Veteran Affairs to fund community agencies providing services to veterans experiencing homelessness. So it's specifically for services or agencies that are helping homeless veterans. The whole purpose of the transitional component of the program is to promote the development and provision of supportive housing and services with the goal of helping homeless veterans achieve residential stability. They want to help veterans increase their skills levels or income and obtain greater self-determination. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, like right when I retired, I had a good job lined up. I got really injured. I lost that job and I was just bleeding money for, for a while until I got a pay, like a standard serious paycheck. And it was, it was touch and go there for a while, you know, if not for the help of my family and stuff. I mean, I had a leg that didn't really work. It was, it was rough. So, you know, I'm always going to pump these programs. I know a lot of people get down on the VA, but they're doing something. And if they're doing something, you have to support it. You got to get the word out. 
So that's just my two cents. You know, and additionally, the GPD program offers case management grants to support housing retention for veterans who were previously homeless and are transitioning to permanent housing, which is what we just talked about. So operational costs, including salaries, they can be funded by the per diem component. Uh, for supportive housing, the maximum amount payable under the per diem is $63 a day per veteran housed. And then veterans in supportive housing may be asked to pay rent if it does not exceed 30% of the veteran's monthly adjusted income. In addition, reasonable fees may be charged for services not paid with per diem funds. So the maximum hourly per diem rate for a service center not connected with supportive housing is one-eighth of the daily cost of care, not to exceed $7.89 per hour, and that's based off the CARES Act waiver. And the payment for a veteran in a service center will not exceed eight hours any day. Applications are only accepted in response to the Notice of Funding Opportunity published in Grants.gov, and I'll include the links to Grants.gov as well. You'd be surprised. You go in there and look. There's some crazy stuff for federal grants. And then there's a... GPD grants funding and fact sheet. There's going to be, and I'll put that link in the show notes and just some highlights of that. They talk about case management, capital grants uh, to support the cost of acquiring, renovating, and construction facilities, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Clinical treatment, bridge housing, housing to house and services in a transition in place. And then the populations they serve women veterans, veterans with chronic mental illness, frail elderly veterans, veterans who have care of minor dependents, terminally ill veterans. And then eligible applicants can be 5013C or 501C, 19 profit, nonprofit organizations, state or local government agencies, and or recognized uh, tribal government. And this is a bunch of information on that sheet. And so that's the $30 million offered in the grant funding to assist formerly homeless veterans. Um, I hope you get the word out for that. So if you have any veterans in your family, you might be able to take care of that. Or anyone that's trying to help veterans. You know, if you run an organization that fits the criteria, you can go apply for one of the grants. And this week's codes and thoughts, I appreciate you tuning into episode 42. I appreciate you being patient. I'm still not out of the woods with this respiratory thing that I had. I mean, I'm feeling better, but I'm still kind of like my, my voice is still kind of affected. So again, uh, I appreciate you being patient with that because I know my voice doesn't sound the same as it used to. And as always, I'm looking forward to pumping out episode 43 for you. This week's positive affirmation is use your time as a weapon. All right, we all have time. Use it. Use it to get something done for yourself that you want to get done. Um, use it to, to to plan ahead and and knock out stuff. And, and I got that. That just came to my attention just from looking at all the cool stuff that everybody in the veteran community and watching these communities doing. And I hate to say it, but on Instagram, you see some very cool stuff. And remember, at watchrolling.com, you make the watch. The watch doesn't make you.